we are trained to believe a certain narrative, right? And so there was this narrative of like, oh, they're just crying out. Racism is over. They're just making a big deal. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. But now it's like, no, this is on screen. This is happening right now. This is in your face. You cannot ignore this. You cannot deny this. This is an issue. We have to address it. That's Faith Brooks. You'll hear more from her in a minute. In the U.S., our Black brothers and sisters whose forced physical, mental, and emotional labor built so many of our communities are asking for presence from those of us who aren't Black. And this isn't new. They've been asking. They've been fighting for their lives for 400 years. 400 years too long. In the midst of a wave of protests sweeping all 50 states and on at least four continents, declaring the truth that Black lives matter, we have a chance to make our presence matter and to change the future following leaders like Faith. I'm Erin Wilson, Preemptive Love Senior Field Editor in Iraq, and this is a special episode of the Love Anyway podcast. A phrase that's baked into preemptive love's DNA got its start in Iraq. Show up on the front lines where you live. Showing up on the front lines is a phrase founder Jeremy Courtney uses often. And we need to ask, what does that look like in the U.S. today? Throughout the war with ISIS, we chose to stay here. We chose to travel to the front lines and to stand with the people being crushed by violence and oppression. We did it out of love, and for some here, that mattered. It mattered that we chose to stay. It mattered that we put our bodies on the line with theirs. Our presence mattered. And now we, all of us, need to show up on the front lines in the U.S. too. Hey everyone, my name is Faith Brooks, and I am the Director of Programs for Be the Bridge, and also one part, um, a co-host of Melanated Faith, which is a podcast about faith and race and culture. Um, We like to say it's a place where you're going to hear the truth spoken, the tea expelled, and pop culture explored. Yeah, so with Be the Bridge, we have a broad reach, so we have programs for transracial adoption, for our, um, we call it BTB 101 for white people. And we have a um, program for people of color. So we really want to be able to provide people of color a space where they can have really a brave space that is protected, where we can talk about trauma, where we can talk about ways to take care of ourselves in this work, where we can lament together. That's really important to us. And it's a very, very protected space because we need that. This is the work that I feel called to and our team is you know, willing to give their, their life for is this work. Love Anyway producer Kayla Craig sat down with Faith for a conversation exploring what it can look like to step behind the marginalized, to support without co-opting their struggle for liberation. And the conversation begins by confronting our ideas of who we listen to in matters of race, whose voices we seek out. Something I have been hearing so much of is that Black women are often erased from the narrative and and the work that they do. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that at all, if you're comfortable. 
Yeah, I think it's a conversation that we need to have. It's something that Catherine and I on Melanated Faith have started to talk about even more because far too often Black women are just like the civil rights movement. We're the orchestrators and the architects of it. But many people do not know their names. And we have to ask ourselves why. And so I think that we are getting to a point to where if we are willing to organize movements and put our lives on the line and really help benefit the Black community and help us get to where we need to be, we need to be seen and recognized and acknowledged, and we should not be erased. And we've seen that with Breonna Taylor's case, right? She was wrongfully killed, but because there was no video, there was no widespread outrage. And we feel this burden. I know I personally feel this burden. Do not forget Breonna Taylor. We can't forget her. And it's so often that Black women are forgotten and overlooked. And it is something that I am grateful is coming to the forefront to talk about more because we need to, because far too often Black women have really just been in a position to where people haven't wanted to honor our leadership, respect our voices, and uplift them. And so now we are at a turning point. Will we trust Black women, truly? And I hope that we are going to move into a place where we will and where when a Breonna Taylor, which I don't want this to happen again, but should something like that happen again, we say her name and we don't forget it. We've been exploring this idea of what it can tangibly look like and why it's important to step behind the marginalized to support without co-opting the struggle and not erasing and not, you know, as me as a white woman, making it about me and centering myself, but stepping behind the leadership. Yeah, I would say it's so important to listen to our voices far too often because sometimes I just think people just haven't paid attention, people in majority culture. Um, and when I say majority culture, I mean the majority of the people in this country, which is white people, um, have not had to pay attention to the fact that many black people and other people of color have had to navigate a very white world and have had to not say certain things or try to, you know, try to keep the peace or whatever the case may be for so long that people have not truly followed our leadership. We've followed a lot of other people in majority cultures leadership, but we have to have a conversation about why is it difficult to follow the leadership of black people, other people of color and why we need to we need to talk about why it's critical and important that people do, especially in this work. We need people to follow and listen to our voices because we have a lived experience that most people do not in majority culture. And if you don't think critically about it, if you don't have these lived experiences, if you don't have to think about if somebody's going to blame you for shoplifting or if the police pull you over, if, is your life in danger? If you don't have to consciously like think about that stuff, it's going to take a lot of work for you to start to open up your eyes and say, oh, wow, like your lived experience is way different than mine. 
And I think that we are seeing some people open up their eyes and say, okay, I, I'm starting to see that there's a difference. But when you are in a world where everyone looks like you, thinks like you, believes like you, you're going to be really hard pressed to imagine a world where somebody else is oppressed when you don't see oppression in front of you because you've not been conditioned to see it. And so, yeah, I mean, and it's the truth, right? We are trained to believe a certain narrative, right? And so there was this narrative of like, oh, they're just crying out. Racism is over. They're just making a big deal. You know, like, uh, you know, it's just... They don't know what they're talking about. But now it's like, no, this is on screen. This is happening right now. This is in your face. You cannot ignore this. You cannot deny this. This is an issue. We have to address it. And I think more people are beginning to see that. Their eyes are opening. And now what we need them to do is to listen to us to listen to our voices and to read because what's going to happen is, is what you've been conditioned to know and believe and think is going to change once you read and you educate yourself and you do the work. To me, learning and growing and educating is so crucial because once you do, you'll see the world in a different light and you will be able to make an impact on your family on your children, on your community, on your friends. And I think sometimes people think, you, I need to do something grand. I need to do something crazy significant to make an impact. But simply changing your life and changing the way that you think will impact a generation. And we cannot underestimate the importance of that. You mentioned reading. Are there a couple books that, for people that are just kind of paying attention and want to become a co-conspirator but don't know where to start? Yes. So I have a few favorites. So I'm going to recommend How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's a really good book. Definitely grab that. I'm Still Here by Austin Channing. Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. Um, White Rage by Carol Anderson. I really enjoyed that book. There's also another book called White Fragility, um, and that one's by um, Robin D'Angelo. It's a very good book as well. These are good starting points as you're learning and getting an on-ramp into this conversation, and you want to know, okay, like where should I get started? What should I read? Those are some of the books that I recommend to people and encourage you to read. And some for some of you, like, you know, the title might be off-putting. You're like, like I don't know if I want to read that, but I'm telling you, dig into the book. You have to give these books a chance. And if you want to be a part of this work, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be tested. You're not going to agree with, you know, with everything. And I just think it's really important to um, make sure that you actually lean into this work and you start doing it. And they listen to podcasts too. Like the 1619 podcast is incredible, you know? So definitely check out things like the 1619 podcast code switch. Um, um, by seen on radio, they did a series called seeing white. It's really good. So definitely like check out some other podcasts and ways where you can listen as well. Some people, um, some of the, most of those people have audiobooks. So if you're more of like a listener to books, definitely do that. There's all kinds of ways for you to learn some things and get connected 
and your eyes begin to be opened. And it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's a good moment to be in. And my hope is that as you're reading through these books, it's like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know. If you didn't get those recommendations jotted down, don't worry. A full list, including links, can be found in our show notes at loveanyway.org slash podcast. But now that you know and your eyes are opened, you're willing to be out there following the leadership of Black people, specifically even Black women doing the work, orchestrating these movements, and being willing to support us, lift up our arms, and um, put your body on the line for this movement and for what we're doing, because we are fighting inequality and justice, and we are saying that just because our skin color is different does not mean we are inferior. And the whole world, we all need to get to a place to where that is not an issue. And that is something that many of us are willing to fight for and die for and tear down systemic racism and oppression that has um, really put down communities for over 400 years. <laughs> and um, we are ready to see change. And I think um, this is the time to really lean into what feels uncomfortable um, and ask yourself, if you heard about the civil rights movement and you said to yourself, oh, well, I would have been, I would have done this or I would have done that, that now is the moment. What are you doing right now? Because this is that moment and this is the moment for you to choose how you're going to respond. I hear a lot of people say, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I want to do this work of supporting, but I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. Yeah, I think it's perfectly fine just to say racism is wrong. White supremacy is wrong. It's evil. I'm denouncing that. I do not have all of the answers. I don't know the full way forward, but I know that this is wrong and I'm committed to learning. I think it can be as simple as that. We don't have to have all the answers, you know, um, just the simple acknowledgement of I don't know everything. I really don't have all of the answers, but I know that this is wrong and I'm going to be committed to learning. I'm going to be committed to speaking up. I'm going to be committed even though I don't understand everything. And this is where you amplify the voices that do know. So you don't know everything, that's okay. Share with your friends, repost our stuff, support our work. A lot of us are doing some hard work and have language that you don't, so uplift us and speak to people in your community. Just saying that it's wrong, I mean, that starts some conversations that need to happen. And I think we can't underestimate the significance of that. So this podcast is called love anyway. And I think about, you know, kind of what we're talking about to support and step behind without co-opting and centering. Um, what does love anyway in this context mean to you? We're at a real crossroads <laughs> as a nation. Um, but for somebody to love anyway, to me, feels like somebody who is willing to be uncomfortable, to lose friends, to lose some of the things that they maybe have known and and loved because they believe that my life is valuable, that my life matters, that my life is worth fighting for, and they will do whatever they can to make sure that the world and their community knows the same, which makes my life matter, which means that Black Lives Matter and loving anyways is speaking the truth so loud, even when 
you know you might lose something. That's why so many activists are saying, please do the work. We can't just be here telling you every little thing. You have to study. You have to look at history. You have to be willing. Like if you're saying you're an ally, which I like to say co-conspirator, because I want to know if something happens, you're willing to jump in front of jump in front of me and protect me if somebody is trying to hurt me for the color of my skin. I want to know that you're willing to put your body on the line for me. I want to know that you're willing to put your body on the line for me. Putting our bodies on the line, that's surely just a figure of speech. No, no it's not. For those of us who aren't black, it means stepping behind the marginalized, women like Faith Brooks, to support without co-opting their struggle for liberation. It means shutting our mouths and lifting up voices like hers. And sometimes putting our bodies on the line means stepping out in front, not to co-opt or to take over, but to literally stand between the oppressed and their oppressor. I'd like you to meet our friend Nick right after the break. Hey, it's Tony Collier. I wanted to hop in here and give you a quick update. Even though we're social distancing, we don't have to stop connecting. So we're offering virtual Love Anyway workshops. Learn how to press into pain, understand your unrecognized privilege, become a better listener, and more right from the comfort of your own home. You'll learn in community, connect deeply to those who are different than you, and be challenged to love anyway. Join us at loveanyway.com slash workshops or text teach me to 72,000. My name is Nick Malstead and I live in Indianola, Iowa. Nick is a friend of preemptive love and someone with a high capacity for caring. Kayla Craig spoke with Nick about a particular experience he had at a recent protest, but she started out asking him to describe his life. As a day job, I work for an insurance company, but my passion and a lot of my focus is centered on the nonprofit that my brother and I co-founded called The Move Project. And we do work in Ghana. Uh, we have a multi-ethnic family, uh, seven kids total, uh, and uh, four biological and three uh, that we adopted from Ghana. So, yeah, it's never a dull, never a dull moment in our house. That's for sure. Somebody might see you and just think, okay, it's this white guy who lives in small town Iowa, works for an insurance company. Take me back to a few nights ago um, and and what life looked like for you then. Yeah, so um, I, I was actively um, participating in the protest um, and demonstrations in Des Moines uh, back on Saturday, uh, May 30th. And it, it, it took me uh, a number of years to do something like that. I got involved in um, self-educating on racism, uh, racism in America, uh, what it's like to be black in America. And really the tipping point for me to start that work was uh, when Trayvon Martin was killed back in 2012. That got me out of sort of this um, uh, complacency 
uh, I guess. And it, it culminated for me most physically on Saturday. Um, so there was a, a, a march on Saturday. I mean, it actually started the, the night before. All day Saturday, I'd been reading from black activists on social media um, how to engage. And really, I was reading specifically on how to engage as a white person. Um, and there seemed to be this recurring theme that most everybody was, if not explicitly talking about, uh, noting it as an aside. And that was the idea of, of having white allies show up um, predominantly showing up to show solidarity, um, not to overtalk or to lead, um, but rather just as a, as a sign of solidarity, that this is a major problem and it's not just left up to the black community to demonstrate um, and protest against. And so I did that. And another theme, too, that was recurring, at least in the articles and the posts that I was reading, was using your privilege um, to demand justice. And the whole idea of uh, white privilege is something I've been reading and, and thinking a lot about over the last couple of years. And, and it really pushed me and moved me and, and made me very uncomfortable. And so I thought, uh, well, this is going to be a perfect time to put into action the things that I've uh, been reading about. Um, it's easy to sit in my little white town and read these things. It's something entirely different to put my body um, in the middle of it. And so um, that's what I did. Nick had done his homework, not only into the issues surrounding white privilege and anti-Black racism in America, but he studied what was happening in his local community and what leadership to look for. One thing, too, that I was uh, really trying to be sensitive about is putting my body on the front line, uh, front line as a shield, um, not as any type of leadership or um, talking or acting over um, those that were uh, centered in the protest. Um, so for a lot of the evening, just hung back, distributed water, uh, held signs, <laughs> marched, demonstrated. Um, but then as the crowd began to get agitated and um, I could see some black brothers and sisters being um, physically harmed, uh, that's when I decided, okay, this is what they must be talking about um, in the articles that I had been reading. And so uh, me and two others uh, took ourselves up uh, to the front of the line and stood um, in between the police that were completely outfitted in riot gear and created uh, as much of a barrier as three people can do um, between the riot police and the protesters. And the thing that was uh, going through my head the entire time was standing here so that the people leading the protests could continue to lead the protest without fear of being shot with rubber bullets, um, you know, choking on uh, tear gas canisters. Um, and when we got up there, uh, all of that for, I'd say, about an hour. Um, ceased, and, and when I say all of that, I mean the shooting of tear gas canisters and the and the rubber bullets and and other projectiles that were being launched into the crowd. Um, and my hope was in doing that that I'm putting my body as a shield. But then it also dawned on me that I was also putting my whiteness and my privilege um, to work. And then I uh, was I was 
uh, shot directly in the chest with a tear gas canister as well. So when that happened, um, I was angry, obviously, but I was just constantly thinking about this is what our black and brown brothers and sisters go through all the time, whether it's in protest or whether it's in a march or whether it's just going to the grocery store or being in predominantly white spaces. And it just kept dawning on me like time and time and time again as these hours were going through the night that this must be at least some semblance of what it feels like to be either physically attacked um, or or know that it could happen at any moment's notice. And I don't have to go through that in my life. I can go to the store without being stared down. I can have encounters with policemen and never worry about what the outcome is going to be, whether I'm going to survive it or not. Um, and so that night was amazingly powerful just in and of itself. Um, but that experience and, and taking on that physical harm so that the leaders of the protests behind me could continue to do the work, the very important work that they were doing in hopes that my body um, could shield at least that one tear gas canister in that moment um, from reaching them and disrupting uh, the message that they were trying to get to. You shared a photo where it was like, it wasn't just a little thing that kind of bounced on you and fell to the ground and it wasn't like that left a mark. I assume it hurt. Yeah, it hurt a lot. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, uh, I was feeling it a lot later, uh, more so than when it hit me originally. Um, but we were probably um, 30 feet, maybe, from the from the line of police that were in riot gear. And so um, it hit me uh, really, really hard. And, and uh, for anybody who's never seen or, or been around a tear gas canister, um, it actually, the, the top of it starts on fire. And that's how the smoke is dispensed um, through the top of it. And so when it hit me, it was already lit. And so it, it not only left a bruise, but it burned me. Um, and not to mention the fact that it hurt because I was, uh, I was pretty close uh, uh, to the officer that, that shot it at me. Um, so, yeah. You also brought your son, right? Your teenage son? I did. Yep. My oldest what was your reasoning behind um, bringing your son with you? Yeah, we talk in the house a lot about activism, and we're still trying to navigate what that looks like um, with kids as old as 19 and as young as five and all ages in between. Um, and it, we had sort of reached a point with George Floyd being killed that, you know, just talking about it inside the house this time wasn't going to be enough. We've talked a little bit um, about how when you're showing up and putting yourself on the front line um, as a person of privilege who is not being oppressed, it's going to cost you something. I mean, it's true. It does cost you something. And, and you know, it, it's a silly example, but I got after I made the post about... Um, uh, taking that canister to the chest and and showed the picture, um, I kept referring to this idea of my whiteness working. Um, and what I meant by that was I could stand, you know, 20, 30 feet away from the front line of the riot police 
And I knew it was going to cost something. I didn't know what, but I never feared um, in this circumstance because of my whiteness. I never feared losing my life. Um, I, I might get injured. I might get arrested. But as I thought about the reason we were there, it was inconsequential. It, it didn't matter to me the cost because I was thinking about all of the things, the hundreds of years and all the lives lost that led up to Saturday, May 30th, and having the ability to stand there in that moment in solidarity, um, it did cost. And it not only cost in physical pain, but just uh, looking around and participating emotionally, um, it, it costs something emotionally. And then it, it continues to cost something today. I mean, we had actually had an incident um, with our children in our town that very afternoon. And so I've, I've been very outspoken and that made me even more so. We've had uh, threats against our family. My chest is still very swollen and, and uh, burned. But in light of the reason we're there, um, it doesn't matter to me. I felt we were required to be there if I truly desire to be an ally, um, it costs and it can be painful um, in all sorts of ways and it can linger and the work, um, the work takes a long time. And so I don't expect it to really go away. Um, but, you know, that's what I personally feel uh, just needs to happen. This isn't like a one and done thing for you. No, it's not. Um, and, you know, at, this can be agitating, um, especially uh, in the white spaces that um, are predominantly where I'm at um, by way of where I live and, and where I work. This kind of um, simple activism um, is very troubling for people. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I really try to do is put this in front of people so there's no... Um, ability to deny or to look away. Um, and it is agitating. <laughs> uh, participating physically, um, you do experience repercussions. But I would also say on the other side of that, um, the support has been amazing. And again, I just keep thinking about the reason that in my case, Saturday happened. Um, and that won't uh, uh, any any pain or cost uh, won't stop me from continuing on. So, and, and you know, sometimes uh, just one act has a cost, and and most of the times it continues to to linger because there's agitation there. Not everybody needs to necessarily do exactly what you did in the way that you did it. But what would you say to somebody who is wanting to go from reading to doing in a more physical embodied way yeah um and that's a really good question the first thing i would say is put yourself physically at the front in your in your circle um in your circle of influence whether that be your family your friends your coworkers. there is such a tremendous opportunity and tremendous need to disrupt, um, whether it be casual racism, overt racism, um, other isms, other phobias, other um, 
uh, you know, negative uh, depictions of people. Um, there are so many instances in our everyday life where you can literally put yourself in front as a shield um, and disrupt those things, whether it be the, the way someone talks, the images they share, uh, the comments they make. Uh, so for me, moving out of the reading and disrupting it right in my circle of influence was almost as hard as being physically present at the demonstration on the front line. And I would encourage um, anybody who is hearing something like this for the first time and wondering what I can do, uh, what I can do to, to bring about change or to get involved. And I, I would make a plea that especially we as white people need to come off the sidelines um, just because you wouldn't necessarily identify as a racist. That's something completely different than taking the next step and actively being anti-racist. You know, and I, and I, I think it was Desmond Tutu that's credited with the, the quote that says, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. And for me, that really makes me uncomfortable because that makes you think about what you're doing and, and in this case, what you're not doing. Um, use your voice, use your privilege. You know, we have benefited from white privilege for hundreds of years. Um, and most people don't even think about that in their normal days. But we're at a moment now where we have to make a decision to step forward and use our voice and really do the hard work of anti-racism. And then also, uh, I, secondly, <laughs> I would implore self-education. Um, please never stop learning. Always be reading. Follow people of color. Um, follow activists of color. Um, listen to what they're saying and don't interject and don't minimize their experience just because it may not be my experience doesn't make it untrue for them. Um, so listen, listen carefully um, and follow what they're saying, suggesting, recommending, um, and always keep learning. And a last word from Faith Brooks on one more way we can stand with the Black community going forward. One thing I would say is that it's really important not just to read, listen, learn, and consume content, but also to financially support organizations led by people of color doing this work. Um, it's not very a popular thing for people to want to fundraise or, or donate to. And so it's really important to financially back the work of people of color. And I would even say specifically black women, um, just starting a business and the actual percentage of people who invest in the uh, black women in business is so low. So to have communities of people who are dedicated and committed to uplifting our arms, not just in our voices, but also just being able to make our work sustainable that is something that we need. It is um, something that our community would benefit from. And I am telling you, Black women are helping to change the world. We are leading the way in so much of this work, and we will continue to fight. And we are a worthwhile um, people to invest in. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of the Love Anyway podcast. 
Find show notes for all seasons at preemptivelove.org slash podcast, or you can text LOVEANYWAYPOD to 72000 to stay connected. We'll be back again soon for season five. Until next time, I'm Erin Wilson. Thanks for listening. Love Anyway is a podcast by Preemptive Love. It's written and produced by Erin Wilson, Kayla Craig, and Ben Irwin. Sean Gabrielson is our audio editor. Skip Matheny is Preemptive Love's director of digital. Executive producers are Jeremy Courtney, Jessica Courtney, and J.R. Purcell. Our theme music is by Roman Candle. 